0: Hi, and welcome to the final episode of 2020 of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Dr. Jo Dawson. Jo is a little bit different to the other academics I've had on here in that she's a radio astronomer rather than an optical astronomer. She's been involved in a number of niche projects doing very fascinating science, including uh, research into the dark ISM and star formation from super bubbles in the Large Magellanic Cloud. I sat down with Jo to talk about all this and more, So just to get things started, can you tell me the difference between optical astronomy and radio astronomy?
1: So the fundamental difference is the wavelength of the photons. Otherwise, it's similar in the sense that you're gathering photons from space and you're getting information from those photons to tell you things about space. But the nature of the things you can see is quite different. So in radio astronomy, in many cases, we're seeing the invisible things that you wouldn't see in optical at all. To give you some examples from my own kind of work, radio will tell us about the tenuous gases that are permeating the space between the stars and between galaxies. So in an optical map of the sky, or with your eyes, the sky basically looks dark with stars. So you've got the pinpricks of stars, you know, out in the main bit of the sky, and you've got the galactic plane where you've got what looks like wispy, you know, wispy light, but that's still stars. That's what you're seeing with your eyes. And if you're lucky, you might see some dark dust flames in front of those stars along the plane of the Milky Way. If you had radio eyes, you'd see that those dust lanes are not dark at all. They're glowing. They're glowing with the microwave emission from countless species of molecules, including some familiar ones we have on Earth, like carbon monoxide and water and methanol. You might see deep inside the nurseries where young stars are forming. You can't see that in the optical because the dust gets in the way and obscures them, but it's transparent to radio. You might see young stars forming in little bright clumps. You might see maser emission, natural astrophysical microwave lasers, where, let's give one example, like jets shooting out of the poles of young forming stars are going to smash into the gas around them and excite water molecules which will emit incredibly brightly in radio at about 22 gigahertz. You might see a pulsar, a rapidly rotating neutron star, flashing on and off more than 100 times a second. If you turned your eyes away from the Milky Way and looked outside, you'd see little galaxies that would look quite unassuming in the optical but in radio they're shooting out gigantic big jets and lobes of superheated plasma out of supermassive black holes in the middle of them. I guess it just gives us access to a different range of astrophysical phenomena. Conceptually, radio astronomy is similar in the sense that you're getting photons from space and using it to do some physics. Tech is different. So a radio telescope behaves quite differently to an optical telescope in quite fundamental ways because you can no longer treat the incoming radiation as individual packets of photons. You don't have enough energy for those individual photons to do anything. You're working in analog in a sense, you're you're really receiving a, a wave that is inducing a current in an antenna and you're processing that quite differently to what you would optical data where a photon strikes a CCD. So there are lots of technical differences, but conceptually I would say quite similar from a sort of astrophysics perspective.
0: And my next question was going to be, why did you choose radio over optical astronomy? But it sounds like from your last answer that there's just a lot more going on in radio. Is that, is that the reason or is there another one?
1: It was a complete fluke that I chose radio. After I did my undergraduate in the UK in astrophysics, I decided that I needed to like live my best nerd life. And I went out to Japan and spent a couple of years there working on my other big passion in life, which was uh, <laughs> Japanese pop culture. Uh, My one big aim at that time being to reach the point where I could enjoy a variety of Japanese pop culture in the native language in which it was intended. So I was out in Japan doing my Japanese and did that, did my year and a half of language school and thought, I'm not really ready to go home yet. So I basically cold called all the astrophysics departments in Japan and went like, will you take a PhD student? And most of them blanked me. (laughs) One of them went, no, we're not taking any students right now. sorry." And one guy got back to me and he was the head of a radio astronomy group in Nagoya, which is a large city between Tokyo and Kyoto, sort of in the south part of Honshu. And so long story short, I ended up going there and doing my master's degree and my PhD in Japan, writing in English, but doing a lot of the interaction in Japanese in what turned out to be radio astronomy. It was millimeter astronomy and it was molecular spectral line astronomy. So that group had their own telescope out in Chile. So I don't know if you've heard of the ALMA telescope. That's a huge international interferometer with multiple dishes, billions of dollars, that kind of deal. But this group in the same site had their own tiny little ditch that they did their own sort of dedicated work on. And so I worked with that group for a few years before I came to Australia. But yeah, it was complete chance, but it worked out well.
0: Now you've done some work on the dark ISM. Now that sounds very mysterious, Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: So the dark ISM is not quite as exciting as the name might suggest, but interesting nonetheless. So there's a story behind the naming, which I may tell you first. A colleague of mine who works in France, a senior astronomer there, she was working with the high-energy physics community, the gamma-ray community, looking at high-energy phenomena out in space. One of the maybe counterintuitive ways you can produce gamma rays in an astrophysical context is by cosmic rays, sort of accelerated particles, interacting with bog standard protons just hanging around there in the gas, in the cold gas between the stars. And so she was seeing a sort of signature of these interactions out in space. Some of the material that she was seeing there was something that we wouldn't normally have expected to be there and we wouldn't have normally expected to pick up by other traces. And I'll get to that in a bit more in a minute. But the story goes that she had a lot of trouble getting anybody to take her seriously or to find it interesting. But as soon as you put the word dark, in anything, Um, everyone gets on board with it. So she she did that and she named it to the dark interstellar medium, so ISM stands for interstellar medium, and published a paper in science which is quite a prestigious journal and that's, that's the story of how that word came into common usage. But to talk about what that is and why it matters, it gets a little bit involved So you have to start by, I'll start by telling you a little bit about how stars form, which will sound a little bit left field, but it is connected, so bear with me. So the raw material for forming a star is interstellar hydrogen gas. Primordial hydrogen gas will flow into our galaxy from the intergalactic medium. That's gonna be the raw fuel for star formation. This is in the form of atoms, it's not molecular, and it's quite warm, quite hot, it's about 10,000 Kelvin. And it's not very dense. It's like a particle per cubic centimetre, which is much better than the best vacuum we can make on Earth. So it's not going to form a star in that form. The reason being, in order to form a star, you need to have self-gravity dominate over other forces that would tend to oppose that. That gas is simply too hot and too rarefied. You know, the atoms are not going to sit still long enough for gravity to do its slow work on them because the thermal motions are just too much. It turns out that over a period of, you know, many mega years, many millions of years, this gas will gradually start to cool down, undergoing a kind of condensation into much denser little clumps and knots and clouds. Sometime during this process, the hydrogen gas, which was atomic, ends up transforming to a colder molecular form. Now, atomic hydrogen gas, you can see in the radio. It has a transition at 21 centimetres, and the whole sky is lit up with it. Once you turn it into a molecule, you can't observe it directly anymore in the kind of conditions in which it exists. Because the temperature out there in the interstellar medium is pretty cold by that point. We started off 10,000 K, now we're talking like 50 K, 10 K, close to absolute zero. And there's no energy levels in molecular hydrogen that you can even excite to get it to emit a photon to you. So it's, it's dark, it's invisible. Now we've got around that historically by using tracer molecules so these are things like carbon monoxide is the classic one it exists in one part in 10,000 out there with the hydrogen and it's quite bright in microwave so we tended to say well where there's carbon monoxide there must be hydrogen so let's just look at the carbon monoxide all good it turns out it's not all good you miss quite a large fraction of the material that's out there when you do that kind of technique so <laughs> there's where the dark ism comes in it is usually referring to this molecular hydrogen that is dark in the other traces that we'd normally use to look at it and the gamma ray people actually got at it quite nicely with this rather unusual mechanism of just having your cosmic rays interact with those dark protons and you can see them in gamma rays people can also have a look at it with dust there's dust mixed in with it and dust glows in the infrared so there are ways to see it but it was sort of dark (laughs) to our usual radio astronomy traces
0: what can the dark ism tell us about the universe
1: yes good question So, I mean, the area I work in, in some sense, is quite niche It tells us something about that star formation process. We understand, you know, in the big picture sense, how it all works. We don't understand a lot of the details. We don't understand really how the gas undergoes this condensation and cooling. We understand some of it, but not all of it. Part of understanding that is being able to track the interstellar gas through all of these phases, from this primordial warm hydrogen through to the cold hydrogen, through to the really dense molecule rich hydrogen through to the stars and there's a gap in that one that gap is the dark tenuous molecular hydrogen phase so we're trying to find it we're trying to find how much of it there is that has implications astrophysically like how much of the interstellar gas is hanging around in this phase how much does this phase of gas really participate in star formation will this gas go on to all form stars or will it just kind of hang around there in the outskirts of clouds not doing much We care about getting this budget, this sort of mass budget right, because it impacts on our understanding of star formation in general. It impacts on our understanding of being able to observe a system and understand how much of it is going to form stars, like externally. So it's about filling in some gaps, I would say. I mean, I have a personal interest in the chemistry of it. I just would kind of like to know what's going on there in terms of some of the molecular species that we have, how they got formed, how they're excited, what that says about the temperature. We don't know how hot this stuff is. We don't know whether it's quite warm like it you know, moderately warm or whether it's super cold and all these again have implications for how it's going to evolve and its propensity to form a new star
0: you've also done some research on star formation as a result of super bubbles caused by supernova in the large magellanic cloud can you tell me a bit about that
1: yeah so that stuff so the lmc is the large magellanic cloud which is one of our nearest satellite galaxies that work was kind of the last gasp of my PhD in a sense. It came a couple of years after, but it was a follow on from the work I was doing during that. So there's probably a few things that need explaining for it to make sense. So the question that I set out to answer when I started my PhD was if you set off a bunch of supernovae at once, relatively speaking astrophysically, so within a period of a couple of million years, which does happen because the stars form in clusters and evolve simultaneously, so if you set off a bunch of supernovae, 10, 20, 100, they'll blow a huge bubble in the surrounding gas. They'll blow a bubble that will expand outwards and as it expands it will compress the sort of quiescent gas around it. The question I set out to answer is if that happens, does that have a positive effect on the ability of the gas to collapse and form stars? Or does it have a negative effect? Or can we not really say? It may be counterintuitive because I imagine that when most people think about a supernova, They think it's extremely hot, extremely destructive and extremely energetic, which it is all during its earlier phases of evolution. At least if you have gas hanging around in the immediate vicinity of a supernova, it's going to be evaporated, you know, well, ionized, turned into a plasma, heated up, superheated. And as we discussed before, you won't form a star out of that I may have not described that a molecular cloud is the place where you form a star. So I was talking about this sequence from, you know, through from atomic to molecular and stars. It's that. So, you know, the reasoning goes is if you can turn the gas molecular, well, you've got one step closer to star formation. So why would something that is such a hot energetic event help you cool down your gas? Well, the answer to that lies in the compression. So a supernova is gonna drive a shockwave and that shockwave will propagate for hundreds of light years if there's multiple supernovae. But it'll have cooled down quite a lot by the time it's propagated that far out. And so what you then have is a sort of warm bubble surrounded by a shell of compressed gas. And in the interstellar medium, if you make something denser, it really helps it cool down. The reason behind that is that cooling in the interstellar gas is most typically a transfer of thermal energy, so random particle motions into photons. If you bring the gas particles closer together by increasing the density, then you increase the collisions, which means you increase the chance of exciting some kind of bound-bound transition, which can then decay radiatively, giving you a photon that escapes. So that's a transfer of energy out of the gas. So if you're shocking something, (laughs) you know, supernova shock front, you can compress it quite a lot, make it a lot denser, make the cooling happen a lot faster. So you can, in principle, trigger the formation of new, cold, dense gas. Whether that happens, well, it clearly happens on a kind of, well, on an individual basis. You can look at some clouds and go, well, that really looks like it was squished up in the shell of something. To get at it quantitatively is a lot harder. Because the questions you really want to ask in terms of understanding the astrophysics of the impact of these things on a galaxy, for example, is well, does the fact that I've blown this super bubble in the interstellar medium mean that ultimately I get more molecular clouds than I would have got otherwise? Or do I get less, or is there no significant change? Because the medium's evolving on its own anyway. It's cooling on its own, it's forming gas clouds on its own, it's forming stars on its own. If I chuck a supernova into it, it's gonna wipe out some of that right close to it. And then it may generate some more further out. And it's really hard to try and put a number to that because you only get one snapshot in time when you're looking at something observationally. Yeah, the work I did on the LMC was trying to look at this entire galaxy, which is face on. I could see where there were bubbles that have been blown. I could track them and catalog them. And I tried to do a kind of comparison between the total fraction of molecular material in places where I saw a bubble versus places where I didn't. And I tried to analyze it that way. The punchline was, do super bubbles create more molecular gas than would otherwise have been there? What's their influence on the galaxy as a whole? And the answer was, "Eh, probably a small one. (laughs) So it was a huge amount of work for a very incremental answer, which I guess is a lot of what science is about.
0: You've been involved in a number of projects. Are the ones we've talked about today, uh, your favorites, or do you have another one that you've particularly enjoyed?
1: Actually, I'm going to freak one of my students now because the, the project I was working on, I'm working on still with um, Anita Petzler, who's one of my PhD students, and Mark Wardle. It's been a lot of fun. It's a good combination. <laughs> it's been the most fun science I've worked on just because the people kind of bounce off each other in a nice way. Mark, Mark brings in really good theory and a very, very firm grasp of physics on all kinds of different levels. I have a lot of observational experience, a lot of experience in this one particular bit of science, which I'll get to. And Anita is great. She's brought in some new statistical stuff that we really hadn't thought about before. And she's brought in just, you know, the time and the dedication that a PhD student does. And what we were looking at is, again, it's really niche (laughs) One way that I've been trying to get a handle on the dark ISM is through um, hydroxyl molecules, which are OH molecules. OH molecules have some peculiar properties in their excitation. And there was a peculiar spectral signature in some of the lines that OH emits in the radio that had been noticed as far back as the 60s. You know, we actually, she, Lenita went through the literature. This was sort of off her own back. And she cataloged. you know, she wrote down a list of every time someone had noticed, that looks a bit funny. And has sort of just made a note of, I wonder what that is and moved on. And so what she did is realize what that was. And she managed to relate this particular kind of spectral profile and excitation pattern to the influence of young stars expanding into their surroundings, so a nice link to my past work that I didn't necessarily expect, causing a particular kind of radiative excitation close to the stars versus a collisional excitation in a slightly different place in a shock. We combined it with Mark. Turns out Mark had written one of the world's only models to model OH excitation back, you know, 20 years ago. So it all came together beautifully and it was just this lovely paper that was fun, and self-contained and rigorous and I enjoyed it greatly and I have no idea whether anybody else in the world will care which is (laughs) the sad part about working in a niche field but it's a wonderful piece of science and it just came out a month or two ago I feel that somehow some of the stuff I do is a bit of a it's a it's not a kind of hot topic field and I, I quite like it that way I'm not I don't thrive on a environment of intense competition and publication pressure and groups you know hiding their results from each other my is quite collaborative and quite collegial but I mean that goes hand in hand with the fact that our results are not they're not in the big money big topic areas so yeah it's it's been useful and it's been useful to people who are researching this kind of thing and it's helped inform some of the unknowns but yeah I can't make any more claims than that
0: Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.